0: I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org.
1: Good evening. I'm Alexander Rose, the Executive Director at Long Now Foundation. Thanks for my wife for starting that applause. Um, I have a few things to uh, go over before Stuart comes out. Uh, the first one is an update on our salon project uh, renovation at Longnow. Now. Um, as you know, we haven't been in the cowl for a while, and this is the first time here at SF Jazz, which is a pretty awesome theater. I see some of you already have uh, drinks in your seats, which is a... Welcome, uh, Chain. So thank you to SF Jazz for having us. I think we're one of the first speaking events here. Um, and so I'm, I'm hoping it goes, it goes well. So, uh, as many of you may know, we launched a campaign to raise money for our salon uh, renovation uh, just before the end of the year, along with uh, St. George Spirits, who made some custom uh, gins and whiskeys for us. Uh, And since that time, we have been working on finalizing the plans and getting them all approved by the Park Service, which has now been done. And... um, We came upon a really interesting opportunity, which is the people that are renovating Pier 2, the Cowell Theater, where we have a lot of these events, uh, Oliver and Co. are offering us a discount if we get started on doing the construction at the same time they're doing that renovation. So if we get started in June, we get a substantial discount. So we're trying to get to the halfway point of raising the money for that, which uh, is about $80,000 away. And so we're about to launch a new version of the campaign for that that, Uh, Also includes a bunch of new donation levels starting as low as $10, so $1,500 is no longer the the low bar. Um, (laughs) And we've been working on the design of the space so that it has a lot more kind of conversational spaces of chairs facing each other, and as well as being able to convert into uh, an event for small events for up to about 70 people. Uh, It even has uh, chalkboard robots for uh, keeping the long now Twitter stream up in chalk. And the uh, other thing that we are adding uh, in working with Samovar Tea Lounge is uh, as as we had the alcohol side of this that you could kind of buy into, we also wanted a non alcohol side of this that you could buy into. Um, and so we tried to find a long term tea. And it turns out there is a tea called Puer tea, which is aged over decades. And they have found uh, sourced a 1989 vintage Puer tea, which is, we're going to store on site just like we do with the, uh, the gin and the whiskey. So you can come and your Puer tea leaves come down and we make a, a, a pot of those for you. Uh, we're about to launch this new website that has all these different levels on it, uh, including the Challenge Coins, which are redeemable for one of the rare drinks that we have, uh, a clay-lined tea tumbler that gets better with age. The tea just keeps tasting better in that clay, uh, and the tea itself, as well as a new library that is going to house our collection, our small now small collection of books on long-term thinking, But what we're going to do is ask all of you, our members, to help fill that out with uh, books on uh, basically the Manual for Civilization. So the 3,000 volumes that you would want to restart civilization, and it's going to be crowd curated by you all. So I'd like to thank all of you who got us to $170,000 so far. And hopefully we can finish this out uh, by the end of June and get to the point where we can start construction. Thank you very much. So since Stuart is the host of the series, he doesn't uh, really have someone to introduce him. Uh, He doesn't really need an introduction, I don't think, to this group. But I just wanted to mention a little bit about having the Revive and Restore project here uh, under the Long Now umbrella. And when uh, Ryan and Stuart first started talking about this project, um, it was pretty clear that it was a long-term project. I mean, if you look at the restoration of uh, the California condor, for instance, it's 30 years in at least in order to get from tens of birds to hundreds of birds. So no matter what species we choose, even ones that haven't gone completely extinct, it's a long-term project. And you also do long-term historical research in order to figure out how you're gonna go about this. So that made a lot of sense. But what has been especially striking to me is that Revive and Restore is not only long-term thinking in that sense, but it's also one of the first projects about conservation that isn't just conserving, it's creating. And I think that's a, a really important point that you know, when I look at my three and a half year old daughter and try and sell her a version of the future, it's not just you're living in a world with less, you're living in a world where you can create more. And that's really why I think this project is important and is important to Long Now. And I know that we have a bunch of students here from uh, CSU East Bay, which is part of our Long Kids program where we're just now starting to, uh, to work with younger students and they're very interested in this project and I'm really encouraged to see that.
0: I just saw the future. There's going to be woolly mammoths back in Siberia and northern Canada, knocking down the forest, helping save us from climate change, and keeping the tundra from releasing all those gases, and bringing back grass, which fixes carbon. And people will say, uh, I thought they would be bigger. <laughs> uh, so we're here in the San Francisco Jazz Center, Center for Music, so it'd be nice to start with some group song, I think. Um, no melody, don't worry, just the music of time. Sixty-five years ago, 1948, there was created something called the Conservation Pledge. I give my pledge as an American to save faithfully defend from waste and natural resources in the country, soil, minerals, forest, water and wildlife. I was 10 years old. I bought into it completely. Let me see if this group likes it. Try it on for size. Recite after me. I give my pledge as an American To save and faithfully to defend from waste, the natural resources of my country. Its air, soil, and minerals. Its forests, waters, forest, waters, and wildlife. All right. <laughs> Let's just see if we've got there. He is. You see. Uh, Okay, tonight, the subject is wildlife. So, I bought it. I majored in ecology at Stanford. But then I wound up spending most of the later years being a sort of prophet for uh, digital technology, all with catalog and elsewhere. There was conservation and biology in there. But mainly as a person who said, these technologies, like digital technology, are liberating if you make them so. So, nowadays, I'm doing that with biotechnology. i well, consider smartphones. Digital technology liberates people like mad. Well, just a few years ago, you had in vitro fertilization starting to come along in the 80s. And people said, uh-oh, this is abhorrent. This is an abomination. This is people playing God. There's clearly going to be something wrong with those children. And there's probably something wrong with the parents who want to make humans that way and then they met the babies, and they met the parents who had been liberated from non-fertility. And now in vitro fertilization probably made quite a few humans in this group, and is one of the normal ways that we reproduce these days. Well, biotech is about to liberate conservation, or at least part of conservation, and in a spectacular way. Because extinction is a different kind of death. It's bigger. And we didn't really learn that until 1914 when the last passenger pigeon, a female named Martha, died in the Cincinnati Zoo. This had been the most abundant bird in the world. They'd been here in North America for maybe 6 million years. Flocks, a mile wide and 400 miles long, used to darken the sun. Aldo Leopold, one of the founders of conservation biology, said the passenger pigeon was no mere bird. He was a biological storm. Yearly, the feathered tempest roared up down and across the continent, sucking up the laden fruits of forest and prairie, burning them in a traveling blast of life bird was a keystone species, enhancing the whole eastern deciduous forest, from Canada to the Gulf, from Mississippi to the Atlantic. They were what are called now ecological engineers, animals that create or modify habitats for other species, either structurally, as beavers do, or nutritionally, the way salmon do. And pasture pigeons did both those things. Well, this was an athletic bird, They had two speeds, zero and 60 miles an hour. Those flocks went 60 miles an hour. Dodging through trees, they went at 60 miles an hour. Uh, There's one story of a group of men who were standing around with their horses, and here came a passenger pigeon being hotly pursued by a falcon, and uh, the passenger pigeon, at 60 miles an hour, ducked through the legs of one of the horses. But these birds went from five billion to zero, in just a few decades. What the hell happened? Um, Well, commercial hunting happened. They were hunted uh, for meat that was sold by the ton. And the the problem for them was that the flocks were so dense that when they came to Earth, uh, they could be nabbed by hunters and netters who would come from all over by the hundreds and kill the birds by the tens of thousands, and ship them on the new trains to the East Coast to be sold." So all that was left, after a couple decades of that, plus losing some of the forest that was where they lived, all that was left was skins, beautiful skins, in museum specimen drawers. Now, people did realize that the same thing was just about to happen to the American bison, And uh, just in time, the buffalo were saved. But it wasn't just the passenger pigeons. Carolina parakeet used to light up the backyards of the whole eastern United States. Their vulnerability uh, was compassion. If a farmer saw a flock of birds out messing with the apple trees, he would shoot a Carolina parakeet and the other Carolina parakeets wouldn't fly off, they would stick around and try to help the one that was injured. And that would continue until the entire flock was killed. And we ran out of Carolina parakeets. Uh, Penguins abound in the Antarctic, but up in the Arctic, their ecological niche was filled by another flightless, uh, standing-around bird called the great auk, whose vulnerability was that it bred on just a few islands. And people would go to those islands, and they were hunted for meat, for fat, and for feathers, for down, and then they were gone. Uh, there was a heath in on the East Coast that people loved. Uh, it was diminishing to feral cats, and maybe disease, and loss of habitat. And when it finally disappeared, a local paper said, what we always say, there's no survivor, there's no future, there's no life to be recreated in this form ever again. Well, it happened to a lot of birds, it happened to a lot of mammals. Uh, An amazing animal was the the aurochs in Europe, which was uh, the American bison equivalent. It used to keep all of Eurasia, from Spain all the way to Korea, uh, somewhat open and biodiverse with meadows and grasslands. Uh, Documentation on that goes all the way back to the Lascaux Caves. One of the most marvelous of all animals was the uh, thylacine, the Tasmanian tiger in Tasmania. Um, they were thought to be a uh, pest-killing sheep. They weren't, but uh, it was a bum rap. But nevertheless, they were hunted until there were just a few left in zoos, uh, just in time for a little bit of film to be shot. You see that kind of thing, and you just mourn. But, hey, don't mourn, organize. What if you heard that it might be possible to bring back some extinct species using the DNA in their museum specimens and in some fossils, that it might be possible for these birds to fly up out of the museum drawers and, again, darken the sun nice idea. Where would you start? Well, first thing you do is find out if the biotechnology is actually there. this just a story we're telling ourselves. I started with my wife, Ryan Phelan, uh, who ran a business called DNA Direct. She'd been working in uh, human genomics for a while, and one of her colleagues happened to be George Church, who's one of the world's foremost uh, synthetic biologists. And George turned out to be uh, fascinated by passenger pigeons, and quite con- confident that he knows techniques that could bring them back. So Ryan organized, and George hosted, at the visa Institute at Harvard, uh, a meeting, a uh, small one, with just a p- few conservation ornithologists and molecular biologists like George, and a bioethicist, you always got to have at least one. And um, fortunately, uh, molecular Evolutionary biologist named Beth Shapiro had already sequenced the passenger pigeon a few years before. All she really needed uh, from the specimens at the Smithsonian was a little bit of tissue from the toe pad, and right down way the hell in there, just need a little pinhead's worth is what's called ancient DNA. Because once these specimens are dead, the DNA starts to fall apart. It's pretty fragmented. It's contaminated with a lot of stuff. But we have the techniques now to reassemble, uh, laboriously but successfully, basically the entire genome of the extinct animal. So then the question is, if you can reassemble the genome, can you reassemble the bird? And this is where George Church thinks that you can. Uh, His book, Regenesis, has a chapter on bringing back extinct species, and one of the tools he would use is the Multiplex Automated Genome Engineering device that they developed at the Wyss Institute, which is a, a kind of an evolution machine. Basically, you, um, you write some DNA, you try it out on cells, and uh, what are called organs on a chip, and uh, you race them against each other in a massive way, and then the winners of that, the ones that are really successful, then you can uh, try them out on a living organism. Now, here's a slide of George's. It's the kind of slides that scientists show to each other. But the point it's making is that the precision is so complete now, you you can make changes right down at the base pair level. Uh, There's 1.3 billion base pairs in the genome of a passenger pigeon, 3 billion base pairs in us, over 4 billion base pairs in a woolly mammoth. And the idea is, You'll be able to replace a gene with a variation of that gene, with a different allele. So you could call the technique allele replacement. And what you then might be able to do is to take genes from an extinct species, you know about from doing the sequencing, and swap them for alleles in the closest living relative of the extinct species. Now, George points out along the way that the technology he is working with, genome editing technology, basically, uh, is advancing at a rate something like four times to six times the rate of Moore's Law. that has been accelerating like that since 2005. Just in the last couple of years, the cost and sophistication of his techniques have improved 40-fold. So, the closest living relative, of the ban- of the um, passenger pigeon is the band-tailed pigeon. There's some around here. I saw one last weekend. It's an abundant bird. There's even, it's a game bird. They shoot them locally in January. The, pa- the band-tailed pigeon, living bird, hundreds of thousands of them, is basically a passenger pigeon genetically. There's just a few bits that are band-tailed pigeon. So if you can replace those bits with passenger pigeon bits, you'll have the living extinct bird back at cooing with you. It won't be perfect. But it should be perfect enough. And one of the things I've been learning in all of this is that nature doesn't do perfect either. Basically, everything out there is one degree of hybrid or another, including, incidentally, us, who are part Neanderthal and part Denisovan. So, this meeting in Boston had three direct results. This is, by the way, I think how you move things along. This is kind of my report to Long Now membership. Of, you know, how you get something like this going. You do it with meetings. This meeting had three direct results. One was that Ryan and I were persuaded that there was really something here. The passenger pigeon probably was the good organism to work with in all of this. and. Uh, Within Long Now, we started this thing, nonprofit, called Revive and Restore Extinct Species Back to Life. Ecological enrichment through extinct species revival. And the idea is that we would try to move ahead the whole field of de extinction as a field that can move ahead responsibly and specifically push ahead with the passenger pigeon. So a question that keeps coming up is why do it? Why bring back? Extinct species. It'll be expensive and difficult. It'll take a long time. It won't always succeed. Why bother? But then you have to ask, why do we put so much time and trouble and effort and emotion into protecting endangered species? Because the same reasons will apply to species brought back from extinction. We want to preserve biodiversity. We want to restore diminished ecosystems. We want to advance the science of preventing extinctions And it would be nice to undo some harm that humans have done in the past. Because in terms of long now, which is the last 10,000 years and the next 10,000 years, the 20,000 year now we're currently in the middle of, it was over the last 10,000 years that most of the human-caused extinctions occurred. And DNA from those extinctions, uh, from those extinct animals, is available to work with. As Alexander pointed out, reviving the animals well, you have to move at the pace of species and habitats, continents, basically, and climate change. So it's a matter of decades, probably centuries. Reviving extinct species is a long, slow, gradual, exciting process. That's what we like to see civilization stepping up to, that kind of thing. Now, a while back, we started uh, Long Now in 1996, uh, there was another long-term project that was proposed that everybody thought, well, cute idea, it must be a metaphor. It's not going to really happen, is it? This is the 10,000-year clock being built as we speak in West Texas. from Brian Eno, who's on the board, should be here sometime. Um, Every now and then, something is weird enough and attractive enough that people say, screw it, go ahead and do it. And that happened with the clock? I think it'll happen with some of these species. The second result of that meeting was that word got around to a young graduate student, um, and he got in touch. This was somebody named Ben Novak. And uh, it turned out that along with Bess Shapiro, all on his own, he had sequenced the passenger pigeon, using money from his parents and, and uh, family and friends. He'd gotten his expertise in ancient DNA from Hendrik Poinar, who was one of the leading experts in that, and it turned out he had been obsessed with passenger pigeons since he was a young teenager. He's now all of 26. So we hired him full-time, and in this photo I took uh, the last year of him at the Smithsonian, he's looking down at... None other than Martha, the last passenger pigeon alive. Ben's job is to adjust reality, so she is not the last. The third outcome of the Boston meeting was the realization that there are scientists all over the world working on various forms of de-extinction, but they'd never met each other. Now, National Geographic got interested because they're celebrating the 125th anniversary this year. And they have a theory that the last century discovery was mostly about finding things. And they think that in this century, discovery is mostly about making things. So, the extinction, they figured, fits into that. And they hosted this meeting uh, at uh, their original building in their, in their boardroom, actually. It was a private meeting, about 35 scientists, molecular biologists and conservation biologists coming together to see if they actually had work to do together. And they decided that they do. Um, It was pretty rousing. George Church said that it reminded him of the meeting in 1984 in Alta, Utah, in which it was decided to go ahead with the Human Genome Project. Now, one revelation that I had was that there's a lot of conservation biologists that aren't waiting for extinct species to come back. They're already bringing back extinct ecosystems. So, for example, David Burney over in Hawaii, he's done enough paleoecology on their site in Kauai uh, to decide that they could bring back, right there in the sinkhole where they're doing the work, a piece of ancient Hawaii. All they had to do was eliminate the invasive plants, plant 100 or so native plants, and wait for rare animals to show up, which they did. But that success required finding a surrogate for an extinct animal called the, uh, which was a tortoise-billed flightless duck that used to basically harvest all the ground cover plants that are mostly invasives now that volunteers couldn't keep up with. But a land tortoise, uh, which is not particularly invasive, uh, and, and people keep them as pets and then grow tired of them as they get enormous. Uh, so they are provided for free and they are doing the job of the extinct animal uh, very well. If uh, somebody wants to bring back the tortoise-billed duck, then uh, they can replace the tortoises. But in the meantime, the surrogate is working just fine. And that's this kind of soft edge we're discovering in the conservation biology everywhere. Uh, full name Franz Vera is doing something even more ambitious. There was an article about it in New Yorker a couple of months ago. Um, his idea, he's, he's got this place called the Oostvaardenplassen. Uh, and it's ancient Europe in Netherlands. It was like about 20 feet below sea level. So if the dams ever burst, so much for ancient Europe. But um, he's got a 23-square-mile area in which he is using uh, herbivores like the ancient herbivores. Um, These are heck cattle and conic horses replacing the old tarpan and aurochs until they get them back. And the result is a uh, a nature reserve that, once again, the rare species are showing up, like the bearded reedling, gray-legged goose, the white-tailed eagle. And... Once upon a time, much of Europe looked like Africa does now. Well, one part of Europe now looks like Africa does now, and that kind of thing is going on. But the leader of all of the um, oh and, and I should mention that uh, the, the aurochs is being brought back by uh, Henry Kirkdikke Otten and others who are working with the thing to remember is that the Aurochs... is not a mythical beast. The last one died. In, uh, 1627, uh, very well-documented, as I showed. And uh, they are the parent ancestor of all domestic cattle, basically. Some of the domestic cattle are out there's a lot of varieties. Some of them are pretty primitive, very hardy. And uh, what Henry's group is doing is uh, basically backbreeding those guys to go back to the traits, which are well-known, uh, working with species like the... Uh, uh, here, here, come out. Yeah, the Maramana primitivo. He looks like he's off a cave wall. <laughs> and they're bringing back this animal. Now, Europe is way ahead of North America in rebuilding wildlife corridors uh, using the abandoned farmland that's turning up all over. And so, as the oryx comes back, it will repopulate. Uh, these wildlands and make them more biodiverse by opening them up with uh, species-rich meadows. Now, Sergei Zimov is probably the biggest ecosystem revivalist there is out there. Um, in northern Siberia, uh, he is working with the realization that there, the largest biome in the world used to be what was called the Mammoth Steppe, reaching all the way around the poles where there's a lot of land. And it's now mostly boreal forest and, uh, and tundra, but back in the day, it was grassland, kept that way by mammoths and by other large herbivores. So, Sergei is bringing large herbivores to this place he calls Pleistocene Park, 93 square miles. They're fenced, where he is restoring the original density, somewhat like Africa, of these large animals. And they are treading the tundra down, turning it into grassland, uh, likewise the forest. He began it in 1988, and it's well along. You see the wild Yakutian horses in the background there, musk-oxes in the foreground, ranger and bison are being added. He wants some American buffalo. That would be good. And he says he would uh, gladly populate Pleistocene Park with uh, wooly mammoths as soon as they're available. As he said recently, to fight the forest instead of mammoths, we now use military tanks. Uh, Unfortunately, they don't create dung. (laughs) Uh, National Geographic illustrated what the uh, Pleistocene Park will look like once it's a safari goal. Uh, Just this morning, I got an email from Sergey. He's buying land south of uh, Moscow. He's going to start a more, already is starting, a more accessible Pleistocene park. um, And it's already starting to fence it and inhabit it with these creatures. And that one will be easier for us and everybody else to visit. Um, Part of what he wrote me today is, he says, Part of all required animals I have found within Russia, but some will have to be taken from abroad. Aurochs, bison, mouflons, red deer, all these animals lived on this territory in Pleistocene. Also, mammoths, hyenas, cave lions, cave bears, cave humans. (laughs) So, by the end of that private meeting at National Geographic, the scientists realized that, you know, we're ready to go prime time. And uh, we wanted to get the subject of de-extinction out there in a ways with enough context so that the public discourse about it wouldn't go all simple-minded but would stay as complex as the emerging science is. And about that time, Chris Anderson at TED invited me to give a talk at TED this year, and then uh, suggested and offered the help to do a TEDx on de-extinction, which was organized by Ryan, and we did that in Washington, D.C. this March. Uh, National Geographic again stepped up as host. It was a rather fabulous occasion. Uh, Got lots of press. a really interesting precedent is uh, Bill Powell, who talked about the American chestnuts, the only plant that's been discussed in terms of this. It hasn't really gone extinct, but it's an extremely loved plant tree that was one quarter of the eastern deciduous forest, billions of trees. And it went extinct over the period of 1918-1950 oh, to 1950, and depopulated the entire area. So, starting in 1983, the American Chestnut Foundation has been running a program to cross the American chestnut with a blight-resistant, because this fungus came in uh, from China that was killing the trees, and there's a blight-resistant Chinese chestnut. So there's now the fourth generation of selective backbreeding, and they're down to a 15th, 16th American chestnut, which is pretty resistant to the fungus. And they're gradually being released to repopulate the forest. At the same time, Bill Powell, working with Chuck Maynard, took a biotech approach starting in 1990. They were invited to by members of the foundation. And they observed that the blight cankers do their damage with oxalic acid. Now, there happened to be genes in wheat that uh, defeat oxalic acid. They detoxify it. So when those genes were engineered from the wheat in the American chestnut, you got blight resistance. And... um, in fact, the, the first version, Darling 4, you see here, was uh, nearly as resistant as the Chinese chestnut, and the one that uh, Bill announced in March, Darling 311, is more resistant to the fungus than the American chestnut. Um, and this transgenic tree is also joining the American chestnut revival. And one of the things you have to wonder is, can this kind of technique be used against the fungus that is killing frogs? bats. I think it probably can. Now, Bill Powell noted that um, when you backcross the American chestnut, this tree has 45,000 genes, a lot more than we do. And some 2,800 of those are coming from the Chinese tree in the back cross, whereas his transgenic American chestnut has only three or six genes that are new to the tree, and they are Put in there with introduced with much more precision. So this in his metaphor is you know comparing 11 pages of a book versus two or four words. So the question is, are these tainted species? Well, which is the tainted species? Uh, the one that is 15 16 American, or the one that is 99 and 44 100 100%, percent, 44 100ths of a percent American, just a little trace of wheat in it. That kind of question is going to keep coming up. Um, One of the really loved guys here was Alberto Fernandez Arias. told of the landmark work they're doing with Spain's Picardo. In the 1990s, there was just one left, this female named Celia. Uh, Because they knew there was just one left, they captured her uh, temporarily and took a little bit of uh, ear tissue and cryopreserved it and released her to the wild again. She was killed by a falling tree. And then a couple of years later, in 2003 they took that frozen tissue, uh, made a cloned egg, basically a twin of her, implanted it in a uh, a surrogate mother goat. The pregnancy, after many efforts, went to term and a uh, live baby Picardo was born. Uh, Sometime this is still early stages of the process. This one only lived for 10 minutes. But the techniques are moving right along. This was the very first the extinction, and if you want to ask what the de- what extinct animal is the first likely to be brought back, I will bet you that it is the Picardo, and the Alberto's team will do it, working with George Church and Bob Lanza and others. Mike Archer uh, was focused on the Thylacine many years ago, and now he's focused on one of the most exotic animals in the world, the gastric brooding frog. This is a frog uh, who, she laid the eggs, and she swallowed the eggs, turns her stomach into a uterus, the eggs become tadpoles and little baby frogs, and then she opens her mouth and the baby frogs come out. How the hell does she do that? <laughs> is there anything in that technique that we, we might want to know in terms of dealing with ulcers or something? I mean, there's a lot of medical information to be gained, but they went extinct in 1979. One was frozen and was found in the bottom of a freezer. <laughs> it wasn't cryopreserved; It was just down there with the ice and mm, whatever, but and what the hell. So they've tried cloning this frog, and they've had amazing success. Try and try and try. Finally got to uh, where it's now at the blastula stage. This was announced in March as a big deal. It was in the newspapers. Uh, they haven't got the whole frog back. They haven't got it to where it invaginates in the gastrula stage and it starts to make structure. But to get it this far is a bloody miracle and a sign that they'll probably be able to bring the gastric brooding frog back. That may be the second one that comes back. All of this has A lot of this has to do with cryopreservation. Uh, and Oliver Ryder, down in San Diego at the Frozen Zoo, was the master of this. Because for 35 years, he's been... Uh, preserving tissue from endangered animals at minus 196 degrees Celsius. And at that temperature, the cells stay viable, the DNA stays intact and viable, and you can work with it. It's not ancient fragmented DNA. So, a species like the northern white rhino, uh, which has no breeding pairs left, we just heard from a group in Kenya who would like to work with us on this, Uh, Using the variety of DNA, rhino DNA, that's there in the frozen zoo, some cloning techniques, this species should be able to be brought all the way back. And Indeed, Oliver has already shown that uh, they can take the skin cell fibroblasts uh, from his frozen tissue and get it to be induced pluripotent stem cells from which you can make almost anything. Uh, iPS cells are the magical material of genomic creativity. So, then we come to Bob Lanza, Chief Scientist at Advanced Cell Technology. Uh, He took a, what was it, 25-year-old sample of an endangered uh, cattle called the Javan Banteng and uh, cloned it and planted it in an ordinary cow and brought forth a healthy Javan Banteng who thrived. That's a measure of how far this interspecies cloning is moving along. Now, what really excites Bob Lanza is the capability now, and it won a Nobel Prize last year for Shinya Yamanaka, of taking fibroblast skin cells, turning them into induced pluripotent stem cells, and from those you can even make germ cells, sperm and eggs, and that could be used to bring back all sorts of endangered animals. But, you know, I'm still wrapping my head around this because males can produce eggs, females can produce sperm. Gay parenthood will never be the same. (laughs) Pretty quickly, gay parents, male or female, can go ahead and have their own genetic children. Now, the gay male couple will have to borrow somebody's uterus But that's what's coming. Pretty interesting stuff. By the way, uh, Lanza also says uh, he collects uh, huge dinosaur fossils, and he says, unfortunately, we won't be able to bring dinosaurs back because um, they're 36 million years old, and you cannot clone from stone. Here's Mike McGrew from the Rosalind Institute in Scotland. His money uh, slide is a picture of uh, a father duck and uh, its child, a baby chicken. Uh, Mike's colleagues in Dubai uh, persuaded uh, the embryo of this duck uh, while it formed to have the gonads of a chicken. So when the duck grew up, it was chimeric, and it's a duck. Uh, with the gonads of a chicken. So when it mated with a chicken, it produced a chicken. Uh, Okay, I suppose you take an endangered falcon, or there's a a bird in Dubai that people are interested in, and persuade the gonads of chickens to be uh, male and female, to be uh, falcon gonads. Out of those chickens, you will get falcons. Uh, It hasn't happened yet. But it's, you know, the science is clearly there and the engineering just needs to be carried out. Real falcons from just slightly doctored chickens. So uh, you can see that this will lead to getting pasture pigeons. If we need to go that route, we may not need to. The question keeps coming up are these tainted species? Is there something wrong? is the passenger pigeon got taint of band-tailed pigeon if it goes through a technique like this? Well, Kent Redford uh, has been the chief scientist of the absolutely wonderful Wildlife Conservation Society for quite a long time. And he says we're getting way too purist about these genomes. Most of the American bison that we protect have cattle genes in them. You can't tell it by the look. They behave just the same. They fight off a wolf and they last through the winter without freezing solid. They have some cattle genes, so what? Uh, Wild wolves uh, consort with dogs and pick up dog genes uh, on their own out of curiosity or interest or boredom, who knows. (laughs) But they do it. Wild coyotes, somewhat more uh, cleverly, In their travels to the East Coast, where there are more white-tailed deer than you can possibly eat, uh, have been picking up wolf genes along the way. Hi, sailor. Uh, Can I borrow some of your genes? And uh, they can now take down young white-tailed deer, and the gardeners of the East Coast are not sorry about this. And in fact, the animal has uh, turned itself all by itself into a somewhat different animal they now refer to as the Eastern Canid. So, uh, Redford says, don't stress too much about genetic purity. And then he said something really interesting. I believe that my chosen field of conservation started off with a conviction that it was a crisis discipline and that it could only get people's attention by pointing out what is wrong and the terrible things that we're doing to the natural world. I think that after 30 years of that, people have stopped listening to us. Hmm. And I think that the lesson should be that hope is the answer and that hope will get people's attention. And it's why I'm less concerned about the details of de-extinction than I am about the lesson of hope that it can carry. So Fantastic. Outstanding. Thank you. Well, the intent of the TEDx de-extinction was that word would go forth and people would uh, hear about uh, the idea of de-extinction and, and respect it. And I have to say it worked. It was a cover story in National Geographic. It was front page in the New York Times. There were two articles in Science Magazine, hundreds of other places online and other publications. Um, New York Times asked me to write an op-ed piece about the extinction, uh, which I did, and they accepted, and then uh, they didn't want to use it because they felt it had been uh, scooped by this front-page story. So they turned it back to me, and I just put it up on Huffington Post, and uh, which was surprisingly easy and quick and <laughs> rewarding compared to going through the op-ed editors. Anyway, up it went. And then uh, the great thing is you get... You put something up, and then you get to do science on the commentary. So here came the comments, and I thought there was an alarming theme in there. People think that nature is broken, hopelessly broken. And this was a piece where I detailed how there is habitat waiting for the great auk, for the passenger pigeon, for the woolly mammoth. But they said, nah, none of these animals uh, will ever be... Any more than zoological curiosities, the world they inhabit is gone, sad but true. Actually, not true. Their natural habitat, if not already were destroyed, is quickly eroding. That's true in a few places, but in most places, it's the opposite. There's a recent paper by Jesse Ossible and others, and it's titled, Peak Farmland. We have now peaked at farmland, and more wildland is coming every year. One of the comments was, the human race has stripped over 40% of the world's jungles and forests in the last 100 years. There is absolutely no point in bringing back extinct animals. What they leave out is that second growth of these forests is greatly outpacing um, the rate of what is being cut down. So the question is, and this is Kent Redford's question, what is the cost to conservation of this kind of hopelessness? So, one of the great tools for wildlife protection is the Red List of Endangered Species, compiled by the IUCN. It's a crucial compendium of bad news. Um, <laughs> and it lists, But uh, they've been listening to Kent Radford, and they're working up on now doing a set of green lists. And the green lists will list species that are doing really fine, thanks and species that were in trouble, like the bald eagle, but are now doing a great deal better. Thank you, everybody. Uh, They're also going to be listing protected areas in the world that are particularly well-managed. Congratulations to them, and keep up the good work. So these are signs that we've sort of blended in with something, is that conservationists are getting the idea of building hope and building on hope, and they see the extinction as part of that. One of the founders of conservation biology is uh, Stan Temple. And he said in Washington, de-extinction is essentially a game changer for the conservation biology movement. It changes one of our principal arguments that extinction is forever. Protection of endangered species might be diluted. It's not just a matter of competing for funds, though they worry that might happen. People might say, hey, extinction is curable. We can relax about these endangered animals. Let them go. We'll fix their problems later, maybe. That would be like giving up on exercise and good diet because you hear the costs of heart surgery are going down. (laughs) De-extinction, you must be catching on, is really hard and expensive and doesn't always work. It's better to keep the animals from going extinct the first time. So, for de-extinction to go ahead, it's really got to blend in with conservation efforts to prevent extinction. It might help. You bring back some uh, iconic uh, superstar extinct animal, and bringing back its habitat and the whole story of uh, getting its world back was going to protect a lot of other endangered animals in that habitat. And as you can see here, uh, Stan Temple likes the idea of bringing back what he calls extinct alleles from the uh, museum specimens and from the frozen zoo specimens of these animals that are short on genetic variety and are, are not reproducing well. Here's a landmark. Hendrik Poinar is an ancient DNA expert in Canada. And this is the mosquito in amber that was shown by his father, entomologist George Poinar to Michael Crichton, Wrote the book that became the movie Jurassic Park, where the idea was there might be some dinosaur DNA in that mosquito. Uh, there's not. <laughs> not. Nice try. But it's a great movie and uh, got a lot of people used to the idea that you might be able to bring back some extinct species. One for sure that we should be able to bring back is a fabulous preserved DNA is the woolly mammoth. And uh, as Hendrik pointed out, uh, from their DNA you learn that not all of them were woolly. Uh, they varied regionally. Uh, they hybridized during their declining millennia because people thought, well, you know, climate finished them off. Not likely, because they lasted through a great many ice ages and interglacials and all of that. And there were some of them actually around at the time the Egyptians were building the pyramids. Uh, What did them in was people with spears. Us. I would love to see us move ahead with reviving uh, woolly mammoths. And... um, I'd like to see this become the totem animal for the Long Now Foundation, (laughs) (laughs) along with our totem art project, the 10,000-year clock. Um, A baby woolly mammoth, which is a lot bigger than this, uh, to get a female, and for her now to produce another baby. First, she's got to sexually mature for 16 to 18 years. She gets pregnant. Then she got a gestate for nearly two years. So you're talking about 20 years from generation to generation. Captive breeding in zoos, people will go and see them and enjoy them. And then uh, finally getting them back in the wild, maybe by the end of this century. But I hope that we'll be on the case all that time. The youngest scientist at the gatherings was Ben Novak. He pronounces it Czechoslovak. Style, And um, because the the genomic technology had been covered, he was asked to talk about how do you get uh, from the cell to a bird and from the bird to a flock. And he's a former student of Henry Poinars. He'd been obsessed, he said, since he was 14 years old and did a blue ribbon uh, science fair project on bringing back the dodo. Now, as it happens, the dodo was a pigeon, a big pigeon. Um, and, by the way, it, uh, there, are, there is some DNA left from it, and it, it might be brought back somewhat later, probably. Uh, eventually, he focused on the passenger pigeon, and uh, he showed that uh, the work that he is doing now, the, the main thing he'll be doing is he'll be sequencing the band-tailed pigeon and the passenger pigeon in, in, in exhausting detail, comparing the two genomes looking for mutations. If they parted company six million years ago, there's a fair number of mutational differences between them that make the birds the different birds. Now, a lot of those mutations will be silent. Uh, maybe, it's really most of them. But some will be crucial, like one he's showing here that makes a, it's a coding gene that, that makes a different protein. Uh, that one you probably want to uh, be sure gets from the extinct bird into the genome of the living bird. Now, then you get to an interesting situation, which is you know, everybody worries about, well, what are these things going to do? They don't, have ban- uh, they don't have pasture pigeon parents. They might have band-tailed pigeon parents, but what do they know about how to be a pasture pigeon? Well, it turns out that the pasture pigeon parents, um, they hatch the egg. Mother and father uh, with pigeon milk feed the squabs for about 14 days. And then before the squabs even fledge, all in one day, this huge swarm of square miles of pigeons all, pfft, pfft, go, and the squabs are there on these kind of platform-like nests, not able to fly yet, going hello. <laughs> what just happened? How do I be a passenger pigeon? Figure it out, kid. Um, it's apparently mostly in the genes. And uh, Ben is pretty sure that what happens is, and you can get this from some of the historical record, is that the birds do fledge, and there's a cohort of them, you know, first walking around the ground and then flying, and then there's a, a gang of juvenile now flying pasture pigeons. And when a flock of adult pasture pigeons go by, they go, oh, that's what you're supposed to do, and go off and join the flock, and then they're part of the deal. Um, passenger pigeons are highly opportunistic. They do not migrate from one place to another. They go uh, basically to where the food is, and they travel with the seasons a little bit. So, in the possibility that they're not r- as hardwired as they need to be to get to the right place, Ben figures they could—you uh, could train up some uh, homing pigeons that will flock and then uh, guide these young passenger pigeons to the right places until they catch on and the wild. teaches them the real story. And uh, Ben ended with something I really like seeing, something he thinks is essential, which is, he says, conservation focuses so much on the past, but what you want is images of the future that you're trying to create, because conservation really is about improving the future. Now, there's a model for all this, in some ways even better than the American chestnut, and that is an animal that looks like it for sure went extinct. (laughs) Uh, The California condor. Uh, This is Michael Mays from the San Diego Zoo pointing out that uh, the California condor's wingspan is three feet wider than his. Basically, nine foot wide. Uh, Will Hurst refers to them, when you see them coming at you, it looks like a B-52. Because they have these level wings. And um, they nearly did go extinct. Uh, in 1987, there were just 22 left, and everybody figured they were gone. But San Diego Zoo and Los Angeles do, did a captive breeding program. Here you can see uh, <laughs> these birds were around when the mammoths were in California, and the mammoths were probably one of their major food sources. So, the San Diego Zoo has a mammoth skull for this guy to pose with. One of the things that you can do with captive breeding is, besides increasing the population of the animal you care about, you can train it uh, to know certain things about the modern world it needs to know, such as that power poles can kill you. And so at the San Diego Zoo, they have power poles that will just shock you (laughs) and not kill you. And then the birds go out in the wild and they know better than to land on power poles. So, there are now over 400 condors, half of them in the wild. Uh, you can see them down at the Pinnacles and Grand Canyon, or as here uh, along the Big Sur coast. Yeah. That was cool. This is what seeing extinct species back in the world will be like. So Long Now is pushing ahead with the Passenger Pigeon, with Ben. Um, He has joined uh, Beth Shapiro at UC Santa Cruz in their brand-new ancient DNA lab. They're sequencing the Bantail Pigeon. They're doing much more refined sequencing of the Passenger Pigeon, uh, starting the processes, comparing them. Uh, Meanwhile, our close allies, George Church and Bob Lanza, uh, George just got some mammoth DNA from or sorry elephant DNA, not yet, mammoth DNA. Elephant DNA from the frozen zoo uh, to see if he can make induced pluripotent stem cells from it. Novak uh, or Novak sent uh, a band-tailed pigeon egg to Bob Lanza, who, uh, working with the embryo, is seeing if he can make induced pluripotent stem cells from the embryo cells. Mike McGrew is on call if we need to use the Rosalind uh, Dr. Chicken technique. And the cool thing is that people start showing up. Um, we just got email a couple of weeks ago from uh, David Oler, who is um, Director of Animal Collections at the Cincinnati Zoo, the place where Martha died 100 years ago. And they have uh, the aviary where she died there as a passenger pigeon memorial. And what Oler wants to do is um, do the captive breeding, of the passenger pigeons there, and the release to the wild of the birds back into the Midwest, where they used to live. And he's already working now with Ben Novak to get band-tailed pigeons there in the zoo, and then start the process uh, with those guys of uh, having a, a pigeon flock building once again the Cincinnati Zoo. And the idea is uh, Martha's equivalent will come out of there soon enough. So, as these techniques mature, and the costs come down, and that always happens with biotech, they should be applied to you know, go across the board. Use the techniques, once we've got them, for the Carolina parakeet, for the great auk, for the heathen, for the ivory-billed woodpecker. Everybody wants that. For the Eskimo curlew. There's a wonderful book about that. For the Caribbean monk seal, for the woolly mammoth. Yes, please. Because the fact is, in the last 10,000 years, humans have made a huge hole in nature. And now we have the ability to repair some of the damage. Most of the repair consists of expanding and protecting wildlands and expanding and protecting the populations endangered animals, which will then be joined by, we hope, extinct animals. Because some of these animals, some of these species that we kill off totally, we might consider bringing back to a world that misses them. Thank you. Let me introduce to the stage uh, Ryan Phelan, who is the executive director of uh, Revive and Restore, and Ben Novak, who is personally responsible for bringing back the passenger pigeon. Good luck. (laughs) And Kevin Kelly, who will uh, be the inquisitor uh, with all the awkward questions he's been collecting from you. Thank you. I was just...
2: Asked to remind people that there is a reception after this on the second floor. Along now reception, so please join us. So um, <coughs> there are a lot of great questions, and I think the the first one is, um, what would you say surprised you most about this project? Compared to the many other projects you've done in your life, there's always a point where you're kind of, you have this conception the moment you've imagined the woolly mammoth coming back into the Siberia and other things, the passenger pigeon. But what, what didn't you expect as you started this that you've already learned in the first year or two that you've been doing this? What's been the biggest payoff that was not in the original vision?
0: we didn't have bringing back extinct ecosystems in our mind at all. Um, and the fun thing about doing projects like this is the people who show up, like Ben, uh, or like Sergei Zimov, who just say, Oh, yeah, I'm, I want to do something like that, or I'm already doing something like that, or I've been doing it for 35 years, like Oliver Ryder. And uh, you know these things, you raise a flag and you never know what's going to rally around it. Uh, the, the, the people assembling on this thing are some of the most interesting people you can imagine. So Ryan,
2: you've done a lot of things, a lot of projects like this. One of them was the All Species, which we did together. Mm-hmm. Um, how is this one different? I mean, one of the questions I would have is, is this uh, reviving, the extinction is it inevitable? W- would we get there anyway? Is, is this, is this uh, something that you need to push on really hard right now? Wouldn't, wouldn't biotechnologies kind of eventually... Wouldn't we be doing this anyway? Or is it necessary that we do this really fast to gain a few years in, in doing this?
3: Well, I think the answer to that really has to, to do more with the fact that we're losing so many species right now. And the technologies that are going to be used for de-extinction will be completely translatable into conservation practices. So, the species that Stuart mentioned, the black-footed ferret, then uh, the northern white rhino, these are species right now that you know could be potentially extinct in the wild. I think the northern white, white rhino actually is. And utilizing these technologies is going to make a huge difference. So, you don't want to wait too long. It's, it's a little bit like saying, the same thing with in vitro, Stuart's first question was, well, when is it right to actually push the science into the into the marketplace? And yeah, we could have just waited on in vitro for another twenty years, but mm-hmm. some of us wouldn't be here.
2: <laughs> so give me a little bit more of that vision of what like I guess say hundred years from now, in terms of a long the long now vision of, of of a generational or two from now. And this kind of technology is prevalent. People are doing it in their basements, in their garages. Everybody can just de-extinct a species if you want. What, the, what? How does that really play out into conservation? How how would ubiquitous biotech really change the world of of conservation in in a
0: couple hundred years? What, what, what do you see? I'm. I'm persuaded we've got about 10 years to establish the sort of responsible way to do de-extinction. Mm-hmm. And if it isn't set in place before you actually have de extincted creatures coming out of people's garages or uh, some random place, and then people freak out over them, and the conservation biologists are sort of catching up and all the rest of this, uh, if it can move forward in a well-thought-through, in-the-public discourse, in a really transparent way, early on. Then when you get to the weird stages later on, when there's people in their garden shed trying to make one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple pe- people-eaters, uh, which they will, uh, they'll know that that is a different thing to do than bringing back an <laughs> extinct species, which will be already established, is that, you, you know, you really honor the existing highly-evolved animal, And that you
3: have a code of ethics about how you bring species into existence. I mean, I think what Stuart's talking about is not so much uh, people doing de-extincting in their backyard, but using very low cost, absolutely in the home office, so to speak, Mm -hmm. desktop publishing of of species and creating all kinds of hybrids. Um, Breeders, cat breeders, uh, pigeon breeders have been doing all kinds of weird... (laughs) mashups uh, to date and these technologies will be enablers whether we like it or not and the question again is creating some kind of framework to do it in a responsible way. How
0: many kinds of weird pigeons have been bred by now?
4: Uh, Let's see. Um, Throughout the last several hundred years Mm -hmm. there are Something about between seven and 800 registered different breeds of pigeons, some of which are not bred anymore, some are extinct. Mm. Uh, and what few people know about pigeons is actually uh, highlighted in The Origin of Species is that pigeons actually display far more phenotypic diversity than dogs and cats or any other type of mm. domesticated animal. Uh, all the way to the... Number of vertebrae in their neck, certain wow. things that never change in a mammal. You can actually breed differently in pigeons.
2: And so, what does your victory state look like, Ben? In terms of um, this ubiquitous technology, would I mean, would we have Jurassic Parks, not with dinosaurs, but with a Pale Paleocene, a Pleistocene park? Is, is that sort of what we would get to, where we're just gonna? Fill up and bring back as many extinct species as possible? Or do we just want to bring back only the ones that humans killed? Because wh- here's a question from um, Michael, um, I think it's Michael, um, no, here's uh, Emma. Isn't <laughs> extinction a natural part of evolution? Wouldn't reviving extinct species disrupt the ecosystems that have developed to replace it?
4: All right, uh, I've addressed this question a couple times. Uh, Some journalists and even some grade schoolers, which uh, the the way the grade schoolers frame it is actually, I think, one of the best ways. Um, Which is what? Well, they just have this uh, deep look of concern over horrible things happening. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They still have this sense that nature is like the outdoor version of their pets. (laughs) And so they're very worried about these things I'm bringing back hurting everything. Mm. Um, what I have to say is it, this question has several points that have to be weighed in. One is it's a little difficult right now with the state of the technology to start putting limitations on it because of how many limitations already exist. <laughs> 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 the elephant bird of Madagascar might be an amazing bird to have back in Madagascar. But if you head over to the Cal Academy of Sciences, they just so happen to have an egg of the elephant bird next to an ostrich egg. And it's uh, impossible for any living bird to lay the egg of an elephant bird. <laughs> I could recreate its entire genome all for naught. Uh, that's gonna be the same way with giant ground sloths. I hate to rain on anyone's parade today.
3: Oh no.
0: <laughs> oh man.
4: But I can hold a living ground sloth in my arms and a giant ground sloth is 20 feet long. Hmm. Um, We can't get DNA from anything over a million years old. And that's if it's been frozen really well the whole time. Mm. Really, our our window of opportunity is the 200,000 year range with with some confidence. We might be able to extend a little farther back.
0: What's that old that's kind of interesting? What's that old that's interesting? Uh, Saber-toothed cats, we get those.
4: Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Glyptodons? These huge armadillo glyptodons? Well, once again, what's going to give birth to a (laughs) glyptodont? Not me! (laughs) It'll it'll hurt. Um, Well, I'll I'll use pigeons. I love pigeons. I think that should be obvious by now. Uh, Within the last 10,000 years, the fossil record shows us that there are about 50 extinct types of pigeons. We have tissue in museums, actual soft tissue rather than bones, of about... 10 of those 50. Uh, Some species we'll never be able to work with because we never kept anything of them. There's actually an extinct type of pigeon in which its existence today in our knowledge is based on a painting and a journal entry. No one ever (laughs) kept anything. Uh, And so, you know, I can't bring back that bird. I can't bring back the dodo unless I can get enough of its genome to figure out how to make one. And so when we start applying things like, well, is the habitat there? Um, that's a major consideration we care about. It's a limitation like, why bring it back, spend all this money for a zoo animal? You know, is, is, What's the point? Uh, but if you can say, yes, there's habitat, does the extinction reason really matter? And this is where it's, you know, it's, a, it's an odd question because if the habitat destruction is what led to the extinction but the habitat has been revitalized, then you can bring it back. What if bringing back that animal is what actually will revitalize Mm -hmm. the ecosystem, such as mammoths on the steppe? And the weird thing is that no one I I meet really understands is it is nearly impossible to say that any extinction in the last 10,000 years has occurred independently of the expansion of human beings on this planet. I can think of one. The St. Martinique Giant Rice Rack. It apparently, they tried to kill it. <laughs> um, and when they couldn't kill it, they turned it into a French delicacy that they cooked for two days. It was, it, was, it was the size of a cat. And then a volcano went off and killed everything on the island except for the one guy they had in the underground dungeon. It's a, it's a fantastic story. And a lot of the ecosystem, there was enough of it left that it came back. Uh There's never been a giant rat seen again. I see. These are rare instances. Most species in the last 10,000 years have gone extinct due to humans. So you're going to have a hard time finding an animal on the list of animals that qualify for being brought Mm -hmm. back that we didn't cause the extinction of. Okay, great. That's a good
2: question. So uh, Michael M. has a question in terms of bringing back these species. We have this focus on species, species. He says, how important is it to think in terms of bringing back species as opposed to designing the best new hybrid species? Why try to bring back the pure thing? Why not just go for, let's make as many hybrids as we possibly can. Are we limiting our options based on nostalgia or guilt? I like the
3: way this guy thinks. Because I think one of the things that we're going to be looking at is, are there things that we want to engineer Mm -hmm. into the species that we do want to bring back? So could you make island birds resistant to avian flu, which has wiped out so many of our island birds? Are there things, um, Stuart mentioned the gastric brooding frog, could it be brought back resistant to this particular fungus? So I think we will see... Tweaks like that, and we are seeing conservationists now talking about how certain species should work with climate change at different altitudes. So theoretically, you could be bringing in genetic variation that that is more, um, you know, receptive to climate change.
2: So, so that may be part of what this vision of, say, ubiquitous technology would be, where we're just creating many, many, many more species, not just the ones that are reviving the, the, the extinct ones, but just creating every possible hybrid we could. Yeah, I don't think there'll between. be
3: different species. I think they'll have different, um, different alleles that will mm. provide them with some other traits, but I don't think it'll be a different species. We but could. that'll probably come. We
2: could do that. So um, Richard Lee says, isn't the DNA in the nucleus only half of the story? What about the cellular structure of the egg? Maybe there's a lot of, of, of technology that could go into... Again, engineering the donor, the wombs, the eggs, and the necessary part of that. So that could be, you're saying, what could birth X species? Well, you could also use genetic engineering to make something just to hatch the other thing. So you have these scaffolding species that are necessary just to get the species that you want.
3: I think that's what the chicken is. Okay, right. <laughs> I think that's how the but chicken you
2: may have specialized chickens there. I don't want to
4: see the chicken that can give birth to an elephant bird. Well though.
3: sorry. <laughs> I do, are you come on. Yeah. Boy, what like, a
0: spoiled sport.
3: There's a lot of scary stuff in this field, I gotta tell you. You know. It's
0: big bird.
3: Well, and, and so we got to come back to how are we going to do this responsibly.
2: Well, yeah, right. So, so, so right now we have a lot of laws about, say, people having wild animals. Basically, you're not allowed to have wild animals. A lot of endangered species, you're not, citizens almost aren't even allowed to touch in a certain sense. You're, you're, you're really prohibited from uh, handling or keeping wild birds, say, that are endangered. And so what would be some of the mm-hmm. kinds of... of responsibilities that people might have with, say, an animal, making an animal. You know, Mike
0: Archer, I mentioned mainly in relation to the gastric brooding frog, but he is a total enthusiast for the thylacine for the Tasmanian tiger. And he said if you look at some of the museum specimens of this beautiful animal, you see signs that it wore a collar, some of them, and uh, it was illegal to have thylacines as a pet, back then, because the government was trying to exterminate them entirely. He's pretty sure they were kept as a pet. And that if it hadn't been illegal, uh, that would have helped them survive. He said, no animal that has worked out a relationship with humans has ever gone extinct. And so it may well be that part of the sort of peacemaking that we, we make with these extinct animals is we bring them back, and I'm sure it'll happen with pasture pigeons, is that people are gonna you know the pigeon fanciers are gonna want some. And I assume uh, I don't know, that's okay with us, right? I <laughs> want
4: to see passenger pigeons in every exotic aviary area in the United States. Good. I I want, you know, I don't want this to be an idea of I'm giving my bird to the world. I want this to be our bird mm-hmm. as Americans, as Canadians who, who originally got to see it. I I uh, I want a future of de-extinction that's not about trying to move backwards to the past, but is about the idea of possibly customized species and using biology more in the application of our lives. I think the future is about quality of human life and responsibility to a future we have. We as humans, we change the world more than any other entity, and it's high time we start doing it responsibly and consciously. And this isn't about necessarily bringing back a mammoth because, well, it would be really nice to erase that gap. The mammoth is an animal that could change an ecosystem. We're talking about changing the world in a way that we've never done before. And it comes to pets, agriculture, everything, those are all things that people have intimate relationships with that we need to Mm. change and we need to work with for an expanding population. And, yeah, if I can give a passenger pigeon to some young 14-year-old version of me that he can keep at his house, then I don't see anything wrong with that.
2: Andy Isaacson suggests our relationship with some of these things, like the mammoth would be the um, mammoth burgers. would be if, if mammoth burger turned out to be really the best burger in the world...
0: <laughs> then, uh, you know, you can make it without... Any- uh, killing a mammoth. In fact, you can probably make it without reviving a mammoth um, because you know, mammoth tissue is so well preserved in the permafrost. I think we want to have an ad The guys tissue. who are starting yeah. <laughs> to print meat at Modern Meadow and so on, I've already talked to them about this. Right. They said, we'll start with leather. Can we make mammoth leather jackets first? And yeah, sure, why not? Um, mammoth burgers? Mm-hmm. Bring it on. Uh, all of that prepares people for the mammoth, I yes. guess. So you be, you've been uh,
2: constructing this as a very positive thing: is use conservation to create, to make hope.
0: Is this the what can possibly go wrong question? Yes. Coming? What <laughs> can possibly go wrong? <laughs> so wh-
2: wh- what are you really worried about?
0: Velociraptor. <sighs> um. <laughs> You remember that the the best line, really, in the movie Jurassic Park is uh, when the uh, uh, Goldblum character says, uh, which I think was based on Stuart Kaufman at Santa Fe Institute, he's the chaos guy, right, and he says, "Um, uh, life will find a way. (laughs) And that's what we're going to keep rediscovering. And uh, at the same time, we'll be beating our heads bloody trying to make some recalcitrant animal from from get it to survive, and they just won't do it because things like that occur at every level of this process. Other animals will be sort of, you know, oozing them along (laughs) and off they go. Now, there is a fear out there that there's going to be the mongoose in Hawaii phenomenon, um, or the brown tree snake in Guam phenomenon, that somehow nature is extremely fragile, and some particular entity gets loose with who knows what gene in there and it'll take off and destroy well, everything. and the
3: human hubris will think we know what is appropriate to put where right. and put it in the wrong place, right? Exactly. That's the other part of the story.
0: Right. Um, you know, the hard part is going to be getting these things to survive in the wild. The zoo is such a cushy place for an animal that when you try to push them out, they say, no, are you kidding? I'll live half as long. I'll be hungry most of the time. I'll never find a mate. There's no doctors out there. Do you know what it's like to live without? I mean, you cannot get animals to leave the zoo. It's really hard. You have to train them and all the rest of it. So you know, those are the real issues. I think we're going to meet is is actually getting these things to live back out in nature, which is one tough neighborhood for every animal out there.
2: So, Ben, you kind of um, uh, have invented your, your job, um, and is, is this sort of uh, the first of the first? Are you the first person in an emerging field, or is this a movement? Is this is this a scientific discipline and I also understand, Ryan, that you are looking to hire some I more want people. This
3: employee number two.
2: Employee number two. <laughs> so, um, Project coordinator. Project coordinator. But uh, is, is this something that, that we're going to find a lot of people uh, immediately? Are, are, are there other are more, besides the, the people that Stuart showed, are there, um, is, does this have a name? Does this field have a name? Does it have a journal?
4: Uh, no. Um,
3: ben, aren't you going to be the first PhD I don't know. candidate with a know extinction I really debris? don't know. Um,
4: you know, you asked earlier how what's surprising about this that's yeah. different from other projects, and I thought to myself, this is my first project. <laughs> I'm so glad I picked an easy one. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm 26, I, I, uh, I'm notoriously bad with graduate mm. programs. So I, I don't know if I'll finish one, but I'm slightly too dedicated to the product and the work to do well at school programs anymore. Um, and just before I really continue, how, how many people in here are under the age of 50?
3: Wow.
0: Ooh, good sign.
4: That's a really good sign. That's a good sign. I promise you, if some horrible accident doesn't take you away beforehand, that given your life expectancy, you'll see passenger pigeons, and that's because of this emerging field. That's because of Ryan and Stuart pulling this together and the other people that have already been working on the technology to develop in this into this for years. But uh, you know to show you how. You know, the technology goes fast, but building a field can be kind of slow. Ancient DNA started in 1984 as Hmm. a technique. It's not an actual field, it's a technique. That's Mm -hmm. important to distinguish. It's a technique that you can use to explore evolutionary biology, uh, forensics, all types of things. And, you know, to this day, there's still only a handful of people in the world that work on it. Only a few labs in the United States that Mm -hmm. do it. And so, you know, it might be 50 to 100 years before this is really an established field Mm -hmm. that any student can enter a program and do. But that's what makes the first projects uh, so amazing and adventurous and great to be a part of, is this is what sets the premiere of this. And I can't say I'm the first, but I'm really happy to be riding upon the the wings of the people that are making it with
2: me. Do... Thank you. I hope I'm over 50, but I hope I can get to see the passenger <laughs> too. Stick around. Yeah, stick around. So, do any of you want to be resurrected uh, from a little bit of spit uh, when you're, after you're gone?
3: We have friends that are working on uh, <laughs> aging and we'd like to just go back in time, not be de extincted. No. Just get younger. Okay. This is.
0: This is going to be such a biotech century, I think, kind of like the, the last century became a digital century. Right. That uh, what seems kind of exciting and amazing now will uh, not seem as exciting and amazing as other astounding things going on, of life extension and all the kinds of strange stuff. Gay couples having their own kids and uh, the curing of diseases. Uh, okay, here's how weird it's getting. <laughs> Already, in Britain, the Newfield Bioethics Council said it's okay for uh, English children to have three genetic parents. By which they mean, there's a technique now where if uh, a couple is about to have a child, and the woman has her mitochondrial DNA is distinct from her nuclear DNA, her mitochondrial DNA uh, carries diseases, and mitochondrial diseases are horrible for children, you would like to nip that bud right now. Well, it can be done, and it is being done medically in England, where uh, she provides an egg in the standard in vitro fertilization technique, and then uh, another woman provides an egg, and the nucleus from the mother's egg is implanted into the enucleated egg from this other woman, that other woman's enucleated egg with the nuclear DNA of the mother has her mitochondrial DNA, which is completely healthy. This is then implanted back in the uterus of the mother, and that child is born with mitochondrial DNA of this other woman and the nuclear DNA of uh, the birth mother. That's already getting pretty strange. These are, in a sense, chimeric humans now being made in England legally. (laughs)
2: Um, it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning, yes. I, I've also made the distinction that the thing about the tech team, about, about technology was there was never an extinction. In the biological world, there was always extinction. Mm-hmm. Most of the species that have ever lived are extinct. And so what we're doing now is basically we're making biology that doesn't have extinction, which makes it sort of like technology. So I think we're at the beginning of the variety and the speed that we saw in, in technology and computers but with the wonder and the complexity of biology. So it's definitely going to be a fantastic, weird world.
3: Can I can I tell you yeah. what I'm worried about? Yes. Oh, good. Uh, it, it, I think the biggest challenge that this, quote, field of de-extinction runs is when it gets really pitted against existing conservation or environmental ethics or movement as such, as you can't do kind of genomic engineering on this side and be a, a card-carrying conservationist or environmentalist on the other side. And I think that what, you know, sort the job I see long now and Revive and Restore in particular playing is really to help you know, blend that, that basically when you're protecting and conserving an ecosystem or a species on the brink, it's really no different than really trying to help bring something back that has gone extinct. That it really is one continuum. And if we can forge that, you know, that, you know make that bridge and allow people to think that they don't have to be in this kind of either-or situation, um, I think it would be really healthy.
2: Well, this is a generational project, and I hope that the under-50 crowd here takes up this and um, really executes what you guys have started. But thanks for the thank you, thank Thank you.
3: you. You
0: This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.